You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Right, we come uh, to questions 96 and 97 in our shorter catechism, and we have more copies here. And if you want a copy, Brandon will get you one. <laughs> he just sat down. He's been at work all morning getting everything ready for us, and then I asked him to stand up again. So if you need a copy of the shorter catechism, um, Brandon has some, or you can come up and get them. <clears throat> so we are looking at the Lord's Supper. Uh, if you are looking at your catechism, um, last time we looked at with Pastor Wright questions 91, 92, and 93, and this week we're actually skipping 94 and 95, and then Pastor Wright will circle back to those last time. And we did this because when we were teaching through the standards or the Westminster Confession of Faith, I taught on baptism and Pastor Wright taught on the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to swap it this time where I teach on the Lord's Supper and he teaches on baptism this time. So you get the, the full spectrum, the full gamut uh, when you add these two lessons together uh, from the catechism and from the confession. So we are coming to the Lord's Supper. I want to just mention a few uh, resources as I will do from time to time on this. And um, the, the first one is Calvin's Institutes. I don't know a better place to start than that. Um, it's incredibly warm and engaging. You deal with his, uh, his immediate context, he's dealing with Roman Catholicism, and so you deal with a lot of that in his discussion there. But it's wonderfully rich for our edification, and there's an entire chapter here um, I don't know, 30, 40 pages on the Lord's Supper, maybe more. <clears throat> and then uh, Louis Burkhoff and his systematic theology. It's a great succinct summary. It's 15 to 20 pages shorter, um, more uh, systematic and kind of listing out Bible verses that support it and things like that. But if you've never um, read one of these, I highly recommend it. We also have a little resource in um, the Narthex on the Lord's Supper that you're free to take as well uh, to learn more about it. So let's, uh, let's just go to the questions. We'll start with 96, and I'll read it, and we'll work through it. So question 96, what is the Lord's Supper? <clears throat> the Lord's Supper is a sacrament wherein, by giving and receiving bread and wine, according to Christ's appointment, his death is showed forth, and the worthy receivers are, not after a corporal and carnal manner, manner but by faith made partakers of his body and blood with all his benefits, to their spiritual nourishment and growth and grace. So we start with the statement that the Lord's Supper is a sacrament. Baptism and the Supper are the two sacraments instituted by Christ. We looked at this last time, but just to refresh, question 93 <clears throat> defines a sacrament as a holy ordinance instituted by Christ. So something that Christ specifically calls us to do as the church wherein by sensible signs, by these outward signs that come, come to us through different senses, Christ 
and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. So these ways, Christ is appointed that the benefits of the new covenant come to us, are applied to us, are received by us, even in a sense are experienced by us through these means. And Christ has, or, uh, has ordained these two ordinances that we call sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So this is important. Of all the things in the world, Christ has said, do these two things that you would know your status as my children. Do these things and you will know the covenant of grace. You will know all the benefits of this covenant. And we see Christ instituted. Where did Christ institute the Lord's Supper? I'm not trapping you. I'm not trapping you. Where did Christ institute the Lord's Supper? Yeah, in the upper room, right? The Passover meal with the disciples. Um, he did the supper. He, he uh, performed the supper there. But the question is, so why do we continue to do the Lord's Supper when, right before he did that, according to the Gospel of John, he washed the disciples' feet, right? So there's foot washing and there's the Lord's Supper. So why do we continue the Lord's Supper but not foot washing? What makes it a perpetual sacrament for the church and not just a one-time thing that Christ did and it's one and done? Yeah. Great. Okay. Yes. Yes. This actually comes from Paul's language. Um, do this as often as you eat. Um, but okay. Yes. Yeah, so you're starting to look at the language. It's exactly right. Very good. But the foot washing was an example of humility of how we are to serve. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So, so you look at the nature of the actions, they're, they're different, right? Christ is doing this as, as an example. And then I do think we look at the words to show there's something different going on here. A couple, couple points here I want to show you, um, because this is not simply a one-time act. We see this Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then 1 Corinthians, where Paul um, reiterates the institution. <clears throat> a couple language things. He says, I will not drink, some places say, again, of this fruit of the vine until... Dot, dot, dot. Until I come again, there's other language, until we're in glory. Um, I will not drink of this until. So there's this aspect that this is a continual thing that we do. That we do it while we're waiting Christ to bodily return. So it's something that we continue to do, this fruit of the vine. Um, and I'll say here, this fruit of the vine, it's not generic language. Oftentimes we take this as generic. Oh, this is, you know, anything that comes from a grape can be called fruit of the vine. This is actually rabbinic language that refers to consecrated wine for religious purposes. Consecrated wine for religious purposes. And so Jesus is saying, this fruit of the vine is consecrated wine that you're going to continue to partake of. This is something that is a part of the Christian life. And part of the communion of saints is you will partake in this meal, in this fruit of the vine. There's an explicit mention of this being a covenant meal. And these covenant meals are things that are done, like the, the Passover was done annually. This is something that's done over and over to remind ourselves of that covenant that was made. And one place even Jesus calls this the new covenant meal in Luke. And then Paul's statement, like Casey said, Paul's statement of as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, inferring it celebrated regularly. And all throughout the epistles, it's discussed something that is, it's assumed this is something they're doing regularly. So this is something that's very different from foot washing. We never hear about it again in the New Testament, that one example in John. And so this is an important sacrament that we are to continue to do. so what does, um, oh, here we have a, a sacrament. First point here, it's a sacrament. Christ instituted it. Christ calls us to do it. And there's a couple reasons why. 
So it's done with giving and receiving bread and wine according to Christ's appointment. So Christ said, take and eat, um, drink of this all of you. So we receive it and eat and drink as Christ has commanded us. Why? There's a couple things. It's first a meal of remembrance. His death is showed forth. So when we take the elements, the blood is showed forth in the cup, and the body is showed forth in the bread. As we partake these elements, we're reminded every week of what Christ did. We come back to the cross week by week. And so his death is showed forth even in this meal. He died that we can partake of this meal. It points us back again to the cross, what Jesus did, what he did right after he instituted that meal. And so it pictures for us Christ's death. This is the image we have of Jesus. It's the bread and the cup. This is the image that we look to, the image that we even partake and we ingest because this is what God has given us to show us Christ, show us his death. And it trains us to focus on the central event in Christianity. And as we do that, as we look to the cross, it grows us, it grows us in trust, <clears throat> grows us in faith, it grows us in cherishing Christ, growing us in appreciation for him and growing us in hatred for our sin because it's our sin that put him there. So it is a remembrance, a looking back upon what Christ has done for us. I'll pause there for comments. <clears throat> The question, why do we not serve wine? Um, I don't know the history of why Redeemer decided to do what it does. It's, um, I guess, um, my view would be that it's um, not wrong per se, but it's irregular. Um, And I do think wine is preferable. Um, I don't know why we do grape juice, and that's a good conversation to have at some point. (laughs) Other questions? That's right. Do you know Yeah, I don't know their exact reasons why, and I tried to head that off a little bit with, with that discussion we had a minute ago. I don't think there's textual basis for it, but I do think um, seeing Christ doing this, and, and it's connected in that upper room discourse, um, even though John doesn't go through the institution of the supper, it's clearly connected to it. And so I think the point is, hey, before we go to the supper, let's do all that Christ did on that night, and let's wash our feet as well. Um, I don't think there's textual basis for it. I don't think it's something we do in Christian worship even. Um, it is something that we, um, that, that we follow Christ's example in service to others, and it's a posture of our heart and our life and our attitude towards one another. I don't think it should be something for, for worship. But I don't, know, I don't know all the reasons, so I can't go into that. Yeah, Gretchen? Okay, so daily repentance and service to others as a symbolic thing. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so I get that the sacraments were instituted by Christ. 
But did not God also institute some things that we're to do, like marriage, and why does that mm -hmm. not right. be defined as a sacrament? Right, yeah, good question. So the Roman Catholic Church, uh, they have seven sacraments, and so they include with these two, they include marriage, they include ordination, they include last rites, they include penance, other sacraments as well, and they see sacraments as vehicles to receive God's grace, vehicles by which God medicinally gives us grace. Um, we would say that under the new covenant, um, these are the only two things that Christ himself told us to do according to the new covenant. Both of these have covenant language connected to them in scripture, and they are for the ongoing use of the church. Now, um, ordination, we do. Uh, marriage, we do. Um, we do not penance, but repentance. But these are not things that show forth the covenant, and they're not signs and seals of the whole covenantal apparatus that we have undergirding our, our understanding of what Christ is doing in his death and resurrection and making us his people. So I think they are in error, the Roman Catholic Church is in error, because one, Christ doesn't institute them um, and tell us to do them in this particular covenantal significant way, co covenantally significant way. Those are good things. Like, marriage is not just for Christians. It's for all people. Uh, marriage is for, the, for believers and non-believers. And so it can't be a sacrament if it's unbelievers who are participating in the same way that believers participate. Um, and so I just, I, I don't think... Um, I don't think there's the biblical warrant to say they're all sacraments. Now, does the Lord use marriage to grow us in grace? Absolutely. Does the Lord use these other things to grow us? For sure. But that doesn't mean it's a sacrament in the same way. Um, that's not the greatest answer, but is it any pushback or comments there? Okay, not now. Great. <clears throat> Other comments? John? Right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, there's no deeper redemptive historical significance to the act of foot washing uh, in the same way there is with the supper and baptism. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. There'd be, we'd need a lot more content, theological content there to make that jump. I agree. <clears throat> Great. Well, let's look at the next piece here. So it is a, um, the supper is a sacrament, giving and receiving bread and wine according to Christ's appointment. His death is showed forth, so that's the first, and the worthy receivers are, not after corporal and carnal manner, but by faith, made partakers of his body and blood. Let's look at that for a moment, the partakers of his body and blood. It's a meal of communion, that's why we call it communion. It's a fellowship. We are partaking in Christ, even at that moment of the meal. This is not simply a remembrance looking back, although it is that. It is even here right now, Christ is dwelling with his people. There's a particular, um, of course, we can say God is everywhere. He is. He's omnipresent. So Christ, according to divinity, is omnipresent. Christ is everywhere. But it is in this supper particularly that he covenantally condescends to his people. And by his spirit, we are raised up to heaven with Christ to commune with him, to experience him, to know him in a special way that we don't get anywhere else. I want to read a couple passages here to explain some of this. 
Um, this will begin here with John chapter 6. And this is in light of Jesus saying, I'm the bread of life. And everybody's grumbling and complaining. Um, and so Jesus pushes the, the, the ball even further. Uh, when they grumble and complain, it's like, who are you to say you're the bread of life? Jesus says, oh, you think that's, uh, that's a scandalous statement. Listen to this. The Jews disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of my Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. John does not include, as I mentioned earlier, John does not include um, the institution of the Lord's Supper. But this is, um, for the, history, the, the entire history of the church, this passage is what, John believe, what, what the church has taught. This is John's commentary upon the Lord's Supper here in this passage. And it's Jesus' commentary upon the Lord's Supper. But John is, is framing it in such a way that this is showing us what the Lord's Supper is. This is Jesus saying, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood to have life in you. You will have eternal life. If you do this, I will raise you up on the last day. And that's... Scandalous, a scandalous statement. And of course, it made the Jews incredibly angry and upset. And even in the early church in the second century, one of the big charges against Christianity was that Christians were cannibals. They're eating a person week after week when they gather. And so they heard this language and they thought Christians were going and, and, and dicing up a body and pouring out blood into cups and, and literally eating and drinking physical bread or physical body and blood. But of course, Jesus here is speaking spiritually. We must feed on Jesus Christ. We must, this is what's happening. We are, as it were, ingesting Jesus Christ, not spiritually or not, not physically, but spiritually when we come to the table. And that's where the language of the, the catechism, I think, is so good and helpful. It says, we're taking it not after a corporal and carnal manner not after a fleshly and bodily manner. We're not taking the supper as, as if we're taking the body of Jesus physically in us, but by faith, we're, make, we're made partakers of his body and blood. By faith, we're feeding upon Christ. By faith, Christ indwells us. By faith, we are participants in Jesus Christ. We're communing with him. Let me uh, read another passage here that also highlights this reality. This is 1 Corinthians 10. This is before Paul goes through the institution of the supper. He's talking about the, communi- the, the, the fellowship inside the church. And he says this, the cup of blessing that we bless, the cup for the Lord's Supper, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So that word uh, participation is an important word. It's, uh, you've, you've probably heard people talk about this Greek word here, koinonia. Um, that word of fellowship, of intimate union, of knowledge and knowing deeply. And so Jesus says, or Paul's saying, um, when you take the cup, you're participating in the blood of Christ. You are fellowshipping with Christ's blood. When you take the bread, you are fellowshipping with the body of Christ. 
That's incredibly profound. And again, we have to remember, this is not, this is not um, a physical, but this is spiritual. We are feeding upon Christ by faith. We're saying, I have no hope except this God who has come to me and set this table for me, who died for me, that I might live. So the Catholic Church takes this literally. That's right. So what determines whether it's figurative? That's right. That's right. Um, Jesus says, I am the door. Is Jesus literally a door? No. Um, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Does that mean he's a loaf of bread? No. Um, there's a lot of statements, and, and you can go read Calvin, like 10 pages on what does the word is mean? Um, because that's what it is. This is my body. And the Roman Catholic will say, well, see, this is, is his body, physically, right here. And Calvin will say, that's not how we use the word is. Um, when Jesus says, I am the door, same to be verb, um, I am the door, he's not saying literally he is a door that's on a hinge that opens and closes. Um, so we have to understand what the word is means. And this is um, sacramental language, uh, where the sign and the thing signified are so close, closely connected in the sacramental language. Um, it's all through scripture, like um, circumcision is called the covenant. Well, it's standing for the covenant. It's representing the covenant. In the same way Jesus says, this is my body. Well, in what way is it? It's clearly not. It defies um, logic to say this is Jesus's body. But the Roman Catholics, they have done their, um, their that's right, they've done their philosophical jumping through the hoops and they say, okay, it looks like, a bre- looks like bread. It looks like um, wine, but it's actually not. It's actually transformed into Jesus's body and blood without you seeing it, but it really is. Um, It might look like something else, but this really is Jesus' body and blood. It's turned into that by the consecrating act. The Lutherans have a similar, so that's called transubstantiation. The Lutherans have a similar view uh, because they believe the physicality, the physical nature of Jesus can be everywhere. So the humanity of Jesus isn't tied to one place, which the Reformed view would be it is tied to one place because that is what it means to be human. It can only be in one place. So the Lutherans would say Jesus' body and blood comes under and within and throughout the bread, even though the bread doesn't turn into actual the body of Christ, Jesus' body kind of becomes under and, and through, throughout and a part of this bread in a profound and real way. So it literally is physically Jesus' body that you're ingesting, uh, according to the Lutheran view. Very close to transubstantiation, but they don't go so far as to say the bread is no longer bread. They say the bread is still bread. The body is kind of in there with it. The Roman Catholics say the bread is no longer bread. It's actually all body of Jesus. And that's where in the Roman Catholic Church, it wasn't until... Um, was, it, was it Trent or more recent, um, where they wouldn't allow the lay people to have the cup because you're prone to spill the cup. And if you spill the cup on the floor, um, that's Jesus' blood on the floor. We can't do that. That's sacrilege. And so the people could only take in one part. They could only take the body. And then that's changed. But you can still go to Roman Catholic churches and even still Lutheran and Anglican churches where you can only take um, one part. You can only take the, 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 um, the bread if you so desire. You don't have to take both. But we say, no, it's, it's both. You have to take the bread and the cup. Bring it on. Devil's advocate. <laughs> Not about so much the transubstantiation, mm-hmm. but have we lost some of the reverence? And perhaps it was created, for instance, in the Lutheran Church to be that way so that when you actually took it, there was more of a symbolic meaning 
to us humans versus just it's a piece of bread. So it mm -hmm. becomes easier right. just to drink it. Take it, so okay, right, right. So, um, is is there more gravity and weight to if you're Lutheran to to taking the supper in that way, saying Christ's body is in here, in here with the bread? Um, maybe so, um, and I do think that's why the Lutherans um, once it, 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 the the priest basically has to finish everything that's on the table before it's over, or he has to, to um, discard it in a in a way that's appropriate to the fact that this is the, now the body and blood of Jesus. Um, and so there, is, there are some implications there. I would say, actually, um, though, it's no less reverent for the reform view of this. And I'll, and I'll explain why in a moment. Um, because often, so there's, there's a couple different views out there. Some say, our first point here, the last slide, was this memorial, um, a meal of remembrance. And this is the standard evangelical view out there, that all we're doing, this is just simple bread, simple wine, um, all that's happening here is we're remembering what Jesus did. That's the standard evangelical view. Um, now this, a meal of communion, is going to blow the tops off of modern-day evangelicalism, because what we're saying is Christ is really present. The Reformed believe that. This is our, what, our, what we just read. We are feeding on the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. Truly, he is here. Not physically, though, right? We're not feeding on him physically. We feed on him by faith because he is truly, really spiritually present in this meal. It is Christ truly who is there. Christ has promised to join himself to this meal, that when we feed on this meal, we are feeding upon Jesus Christ, the God-man who died for us and lives to intercede for us. This is a powerful, powerful thing. And I think we ought to approach it with great reverence, great awe, great joy, because this is Christ who is here by his spirit to feed us and grow us in Christ. So I think the Lutheran view is wrong because it, um, it messes up the Christology. It messes up who Jesus is as God-man. Jesus is no longer truly man because this God-man now has, has man capabilities greater than any other man. He can be in multiple places at the same time. He can be everywhere at the same time. That's messing up true humanity. True humanity can't do that. So I think the Lutherans are wrong and we, we can't even go there, even if we want the gravity and all that associated with it. We have what Scripture teaches, which is Christ is really there. This is not just a meal of remembrance. It is a meal of remembrance, but it's so much more than that. It is Christ coming to sup with his people, Christ giving himself, himself to us that we would grow, as we'll see in a moment, grow in grace. So I think your instinct is right there to say, oh, they have, they're very... Um, uh, there's a lot of uh, gravity and dignity to the way Lutherans or Anglicans or Roman Catholics might do this. Um, and that's right. I think we ought to have the same in, our, in the way we celebrate the supper because this is Christ who's come to condescend to his people to show us his grace and mercy afresh. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. That's right. 
Exactly. That's exactly right. There's so much symbolism and imagery that's embedded here that we can't go into today. We don't have the time, but you're exactly right. You're teasing out so many wonderful lines of meditation there that is designed in the meal for us. That's right. And that's the only way that it would make sense, not just from these isolated passages, but from the overall. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, good. Don? Yeah, um, I went to a Roman Catholic wedding one time, and uh, it was the the participants, uh, the 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 people who came to um, celebrate the wedding. Like eighty percent of us were Protestants, and so they had the communion set up, the the Eucharist set up for everybody, and uh, hardly anybody came forward because we were all Protestant. And uh, so at the end, the priest had to sit there for five or ten minutes to chug the rest of the wine that was sitting up there on the table because that's the only way to properly dispose of it is to ingest it. So the priest is the one who gets all the leftovers. Um, and so, that, but to your point. They have to think very seriously about that. How do you dispose of it? And um, they've, they've got... <laughs> That's right. Thankfully, it was after the homily, but yeah, the benediction was a little wobbly there. Um... Yeah, you're being way too rational. Don't be so rational. Um, but so th- they're going to use um, uh, uh, Aristotelian um, metaphysics to describe what's happening. They're going to say substantively it's changed, but accidentally it hasn't. So accidentally are those things we can see, the accidents of a substance. Um, those things haven't changed, so the, the, it's not going to change under a microscope, but the substance actually has changed. And so in Aristotelian philosophy, they can make these distinctions that make sense that um, to the reformers say doesn't make much sense. Um, so I, to your point, uh, and actually I've heard anecdotally um, and I don't, I don't know how true this is, but anecdotally from people who are more involved in the Roman Catholic world than I, than I am, um, they say you, it's hard to find a, a priest who actually believes transubstantiation is true. Okay, maybe I shouldn't have said that because I don't know how true it is. But, um, but there, is, there is a lot of, like, it just doesn't make sense to a normal mind. Um, you have to really dive in and do a lot of philosophical hoops. So, um, yeah, Dave. I have had discussions with priests who claim that they have He's heard they've tested it before. Ah, he's heard some point one time. Okay, great. Wonderful, yeah. 
Okay, okay, great. Um, all right, so uh, the important thing here is that we participate in Christ by faith. We look to him, we grab onto him, we cling to him, we remember his promises, and we sit under, we sit at the table of grace by faith. And so that's how we feed on Christ. So we come to the table week in, week out, not just passively ingesting these things, but we come actively trusting in Christ. Um, and so there's necessity of preparation and intentional partaking. The larger catechism um, has wonderful questions and answers here. We don't have time to get there. Um, so let's go to question 97. Because this is an important, important point. It says, the worthy perceivers, or receivers in 96, the worthy receivers take Christ, his body and blood, or were made partakers of his body and blood and all of his benefits to spiritual nourishment and growth and grace. All of that is those who are worthily partaking. So what does it mean to worthily partake? And that's question 97. What is required to worthily receive the Lord's Supper? And we're going to have to... Uh, Zoom, zoom through this. It is required of them that would worthily partake of the Lord's Supper, that they examine themselves of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body, of their faith to feed upon him, of their repentance, love, and new obedience, lest coming unworthily they eat and drink judgment to themselves. So this comes mostly from uh, 1 Corinthians 11, where we have uh, the institution of the supper there, and Paul makes that statement, if you participate in an unworthy manner, you eat and drink judgment upon yourself. And so this question is trying to tease that out and help us understand what does it mean to partake unworthily. And so here, flipping around, worthily partaking first requires knowledge to discern the Lord's body. So we must know the body of, of Jesus Christ, um, the God-man who died for us. So we must know Christ. We must know what he did. We must understand the cross. We must know Jesus who died for sins. But also the body of Christ has another meaning here. Um, the body of Christ, it, there, there's a play on words that often happens throughout Paul's writing. The body of Christ also speaks of the church. We are called the body of Christ. And so we must understand not just what Jesus did, but understand what he did for a people. And that the body of Christ, the church, is who he has died for. And we must understand that we need to belong to the body of Christ, to a church. And so that's the first, first part here is knowledge of these things. There must be a basic knowledge. Um, and then the second one is to feed by, uh, by we, must, um, we must have faith to feed upon him. So we must have faith. Faith. We must trust in Jesus Christ. We must receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. We must do this. We must have faith. So all that come to the table must be those who profess faith. It's not for children who have not yet professed faith. It's not for unbelievers who do not profess faith. This is for believers. By faith, we're communing with Christ. The supper cultivates that faith. And so these first two elements come together, and this is where church membership is so important because you need, we need to be members of the church. The sacrament belongs to the church. It's been given to the church. It's not been given to us as individual Christians. It's been given to the church to celebrate this as the body of Christ, to discern the body. One aspect of that is belonging to the church. Um, where is I going with this? Oh, so to know that you have these things, it's actually not a purely subjective reality that you're constantly engaging in. It's not coming saying, oh, am I, do I have enough faith this week? Or, oh, do I really know Jesus? 
Do I really understand everything? Oh, I don't know. I'm confused a little bit. Maybe I shouldn't come. This is not a purely subjective view. This is actually more objective. This is what the elders do when they admit you to this table. You're admitted to the table by the elders of the church who look at you and see that these things are true of you, that you know Christ, that you have faith in him. And therefore you come to the table, not when you feel like it or feel good. You come to the table knowing that those that God has put in your life to hold you accountable, to encourage you and love you, they say, you have these things, you must come to the table. It's not for you to decide these things week in and week out. Am I good enough? And then we go to these next three pieces that flow from this, repentance, love, and new obedience. This all flows from one and two, from knowledge and faith. This repentance, love, and new obedience is is the Christian life. But this is not a subjective test every week to say, do I have enough love? Am I really, really having enough new obedience? Am I really repenting of, 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 of everything? There's a lot of sins I don't even know in my life. This is not a subjective test. This is an objective test that you must be admitted to the table and then you are a worthy partaker. And so we don't have the option once we're admitted to the table to not come. We are commanded to come. Um, All right, I'll I'll, um, I'll read two things in a moment, but uh, I saw um, Rob. That's right. Yeah. No, that's right. We don't know the heart. We go on a credible profession of faith. Are you credibly professing faith in Christ? And that means there's a knowledge that's required. Um, and do we believe you're credible in that? Um, is is your statement that you believe in Jesus? Is it credible? Is it believable? Um, and. If we don't think it's believable, then we say, no, you can't come to the table. You will be eating it unworthily. And that's right. Well, and that's where the, the session will say, you are not exhibiting godly repentance. You are not exhibiting knowledge and faith. And so you're suspended from the table until we see this in your life. And so it is incumbent upon the elders of the church to do that. Um, let, me, let me read this quote. This, this connects very well. Um, this quote from Michael Horton that I think um, summarizes a lot of these things we can get in the weeds on uh, with the next five minutes. Um, But I want to read this from his systematic theology, the the Christian faith. The supper is a means of grace for the weak, not a reward for the strong. In any case, none of us has the right to excommunicate others or ourselves. So he says there, you can't excommunicate yourself from the table. You can't come to church, being a member in good standing, and say, no, I'm not allowed to come to the table today. You can't do that to yourself. This solemn responsibility, so that's your point, Rob. It's very solemn responsibility is given to the elders. If we are living in unbelief and open rebellion against God's commands, we should come under the discipline of the church and allow its admonitions and censures to lead us to repentance. However, all members in good standing must be admitted to the table and none may excuse himself or herself from this feast. You have an obligation when it is served, if you're a member of good standing, to partake in it. Now, I will say, if you're not there for the preaching, 
If you're out with kids and dealing with other things and you don't think in good conscience you're, you're hearing the preaching and sitting under the word and able to partake by faith, you're, you're distracted and doing something else and that's not what this is speaking of. This isn't talking about the nursery workers who have the sermon piped on and aren't partaking in the supper. It's not talking about that. This is talking about if you're engaged, if you're worshiping, you do not have the right to say, no, I'm not good enough to take this today if you're a member in good standing of the church. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, so our authority is um, ministerial and declarative. Ministerial and declarative. We minister those things that God has given us, and we declare that which God has told us to declare. So we are not, uh, we don't wield the sword. So if somebody's going to take the supper and we know that they're an unbeliever, we don't have the right to do a football tackle, right? That's, that, we don't have that right. Our authority is ministerial and declarative, and we say these things are required to come to the table. And our authority is not, again, to, uh, you know, to tackle them, to push them out, to get the police to take them away, none of that. Our authority is ministerial and declarative. We say it, and we require everybody who's listening and present to hear that. Now, there's confusion, there's misunderstanding, and we talk through that oftentimes with people. Um, and sometimes there's a mistake made. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.com.